Open your Bibles with me this morning to Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16. My sermon this morning will be somewhat different than my typical sermon, if I have a typical sermon. But I trust I shall have your dedicated attention and that you'll hear me out and listen to everything that I have to say, not make a hasty judgment about what I have to speak about and the way I go about it. Romans chapter 16, I'd like to read the 17th verse. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. Come over now to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. Romans 16 and 17. The apostle told us to mark individuals that are contrary to his doctrine and to avoid them. In Galatians chapter 1, beginning at verse 6, we read these words. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. The Apostle Paul sounds rather cocky, confident, and dogmatic when he says, if anyone, including an angel from God, from heaven, preaches any gospel different than what I preached, let him be accursed. Now come over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15. Therefore, therefore is a summary statement covering what was dealt with in the first 14 verses, and that is being delivered from the unrighteousness and deceivableness of the man of sin. It is the Antichrist himself who is under consideration in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and salvation from that man of sin is obtained by Paul's gospel. Look at verse 14. Whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, Therefore, as a result, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. Here's Paul again saying, If you want to be truly saved from the man of sin, stand fast and hold my traditions. Whether I taught them to you by word, verbally, or whether I taught them to you by epistle, in a written form. Let us pray. Lord God Almighty, 
the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, I come to thee in his name and for the salvation, the preservation, and identification of his churches in this world. Heavenly Father, deliver me from error. Deliver me from undue, unnecessary sarcasm. Deliver me from unrighteous anger. And grant that I might set forth before these people and all who shall hear this message the differences between us and many of those who claim to be the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are thankful for thy word. It is the sole foundation for our faith. We have read and we believe that we ought to mark and avoid all who are contrary to the doctrine that Paul taught. We have read and we believe that we ought to consider as accursed those who preach anything different than what the Apostle Paul taught. We have read and we believe that it is apostolic tradition upon which the Church of Christ is to be built. And we make no apology for building it upon men as long as those men are the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ who by thy Holy Spirit wrought great wonders, performed the signs of an apostle, turned the world upside down in their generation, and by thy Holy Spirit were moved to write the words that we have just read. Heavenly Father, grant that this sermon might be used to call out your people, those who love thee supremely, to obey thee completely and fully, and not to remain in those churches where they might be able to obey thee partially. For we know that partial obedience is as bad as total disobedience. Father, grant all mercy now by thy Holy Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name, and we're preaching it for the benefit of his children and his churches. Amen. Due to circumstances... I am preaching a sermon this morning that I did not intend to preach yesterday morning. I had something completely different to preach to you as of yesterday morning, but circumstances have been building for two years, and they have continued to build yesterday, and I will preach a sermon that I want to have preached and have available for a number of reasons. There are some souls that I fear for. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11 that he was afraid for the Corinthians. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11 he was jealous for the Corinthians, lest they would be taken away from the truth of the gospel and believe another Jesus, another gospel, and receive another spirit. I have the same fear and the same jealousy. There are some souls that I am in great fear for. That's why I'm preaching this sermon. This morning, I will preach why we are not a primitive Baptist church. It's amazing that I would even come to the service this morning and be given some further information to confirm that this sermon ought to be taught. I'm doing it for you 
because I want you to know and remember and be reminded of and be confirmed in the reasons why we are not a primitive Baptist church. And I want to do it in particular for those contacts who are interested in the gospel of Christ, who want to worship the Lord perfectly, who have heard of what we stand for here in Greenville, and who want to know more. I want to tell them why we are not primitive Baptists. I appeal to every primitive Baptist who is listening to this sermon to hear the whole thing and not to judge me by the first few sentences or first few paragraphs of this discourse, but to listen to the whole thing and prove it with the Word of God, whether it be true or not. And once you've proven it, hold fast only to that which is good, not to that which is necessarily old or primitive. Hold to that which is good, 1 Thessalonians 5.21. Prove me out. I challenge you to do that. God has commanded you to do that. There are scattered across this nation several thousand primitive Baptist churches. While there are many similarities between our church and the primitive Baptist churches, there are some differences, and some of the differences are significant. And I want those differences to be itemized and explained. Your pastor was trained and ordained by a man who was trained and ordained by primitive Baptist ministers. I thank God for some of what I know coming to me through the primitive Baptists. I also thank God for some of what I know coming to me through the missionary Baptists. The primitive Baptists are the stronghold for anti-gospel means in the United States. I thank God for that. That they believe that salvation is unconditional and the preaching of the gospel is not a means to get a soul to heaven. The preaching of the gospel is simply the means God has given to educate His children who are already regenerated and on their way to heaven to tell them what God has done for them and what they in turn can do for the Lord. South Carolina is not exactly a stronghold of primitive Baptists. You'd be lucky if you could find two or three primitive Baptist churches in this state. This is a Southern Baptist state. If you were to go into North Carolina, if you were to go into Georgia or Alabama, Virginia, Tennessee, states that border or come close to bordering our state, you would find hundreds of primitive Baptist churches. They're primarily a Southern denominational group or denominational groups. You didn't find very many in Michigan either. There were about three in the state of Michigan. We have members in our church who were converted out of primitive Baptist-ism. We have members in our church who have family relationships with primitive Baptists, who have family relationships with primitive Baptist ministers. We have friends among the primitive Baptists. We have friends among the primitive Baptist ministry. We have contacts who we have sent tapes to, who we have sent pamphlets to, who we have sat down and studied Scripture with among the primitive Baptists. And we have more inquiries from primitive Baptists as to what we stand for and wanting to know more about the Greenville Church and what we do here.
This morning, I want to answer several questions that have been addressed to me over the last couple years. Why won't we fellowship with the primitive Baptists? Now, that has a lengthy answer that I'm not going to be able to give in this sermon. The first reason is because we can't find anywhere in Scripture where churches fellowship with each other. Churches fellowship among themselves. The saints fellowship. You look up the word fellowship in your New Testament and you'll find saints within a church fellowshipping with one another, or you'll find the apostles fellowshipping with a number of churches. That's because those apostles were responsible for those churches. You'll find Paul and Barnabas receiving the right hand of fellowship when they went up to Jerusalem in Galatians chapter 1 and 2. But you don't find churches fellowshipping. So I'll, I'll beg off the question this way by asking another question. What is fellowship between churches? If they mean, why will we not commune with the primitive Baptists? And why will we not allow primitive Baptists who are visiting our service to commune with us? The answer is, we wouldn't let anyone commune with us who are visiting our service. Because the Lord teaches plainly that the local church is as big as his institution gets on earth. And communion is communion of the local body of which you are a member of. We are all members in particular of one body. That body is not a denominational group. It's not an associational group. It's not a convention. It's not anyone I approve of. It's those that you've approved of mutually that are the saints here in Greenville that make up the Greenville congregation. That's why we don't commune with the primitive Baptists. We wouldn't commune with anyone who's not a member and been added by the Spirit to our body. The New Testament teaches that plainly. Why won't we preach primitive Baptist elders in this pulpit? We won't preach primitive Baptist elders because primitive Baptist elders are in error on a number of points. Which points I want to give you this morning. I'm jealous of this pulpit. Since I'll be accused of that, I might as well admit it. I'm jealous of this pulpit. Why am I jealous of this pulpit? Is it because I don't want any other man before you? I don't want you to hear anyone else's preaching ability? Not on your life. When I have some more men to put before you who've been called of God to preach and who <coughs> preach the truth, you'll hear them. I am jealous, though. I'm jealous for every soul in this congregation. I could say with Elijah that he was jealous for the Lord of hosts' sake in 1 Kings chapter 17 and 18. And I could say with Paul that I'm jealous for this congregation lest they hear anything that isn't according to what Paul taught. Yes, I'm jealous. But I hope you understand that jealousy. The question is often asked, why do we call on contacts who want to worship God in truth to leave primitive Baptist churches even to be a member of this congregation when they're 500 miles away. All you're trying to do is build a cult with its headquarters in Greenville, we're accused of. No, all we're trying to do is get those who claim to be the children of God to worship God in spirit and in truth. And if there isn't a church in their area, including primitive Baptist churches, who worship God in spirit and in truth, we want those people to come out 
of those churches and participate to the degree they can in this church. Does that mean you think your church is perfect? Oh, what a question. Are you ever asked that? Does that mean you think your church is perfect? Do you want to hear the cocky answer? As far as we understand the scriptures, this church is perfect. That does not mean the members are perfect. We never shall be. That does not mean that we may not have error. But as far as we know, we are perfectly following the New Testament scriptures that Paul gave us. I want to qualify what I'm saying. I'm not saying this morning that primitive Baptists are going to hell. I'm not saying this morning that primitive Baptists may not have some true churches among those several thousand that I just mentioned. I'm not saying this morning that I have any personal animosity against any individuals who are primitive Baptists. What I'm going to say this morning may not apply to every single primitive Baptist church. They vary so much from church to church and association to association and from state to state that you couldn't cover all the differences that they hold. But what I'm going to say this morning does apply to the majority of those that call themselves primitive Baptist churches. 300 years ago, the first Baptists took to themselves the name Baptist. The primitive Baptists are called primitive because they believe the word primitive aptly expresses old, ancient, or original Baptists. Well, now, the word Baptist wasn't known as the name of churches until shortly after 1600 A.D., Many of those Baptists came to this country where they were known by two groups, particular Baptists, those who believed that Jesus Christ died a particular death for his elect only, and the general Baptists who believed that Jesus Christ died generally for everyone. The Baptists were broken into those two camps. During the remainder of the 1600s, the 1700s, and the early 1800s, both of those groups of Baptists began to pick up inventions such as Sunday schools, musical instruments, missionary societies, Bible tract societies, seminaries, things unknown to the apostles and things unknown to the church for 1,500 years. And when I say the church, I mean the local churches of Christ persecuted by Rome. In an effort to make a statement against all those inventions, a few, I mean a few, like 15 ministers met in Maryland around 1830 and took a stand against those inventions. Those Baptists became known as the old school Baptists and the ones with the inventions became known as the new school Baptists. The old school Baptists, after a few more years, became known as the primitive Baptists. Prior to 1850, you wouldn't be able to find the word primitive joined to the word Baptist. They talk about being so ancient. Listen, primitive Baptists aren't more than 150 years old. If someone can prove me an error on that point, I am welcome to receive the proof. I welcome the proof. Those primitive Baptists didn't hang together very long because they split into four groups that you can find today. First of all, there are those primitive Baptists known as the Absoluter Primitive Baptists. 
we have a couple families in our membership that came out of those primitive Baptists known as the Absoluters. They may have 500 or so churches scattered across the United States. The Absoluters are those that believe that God absolutely predestinated all things that come to pass. You are not responsible and you are not active in things regarding eternal life nor in things regarding your temporal life. You say, well, no one could believe that or they wouldn't get up and eat in the morning. Well, that's where they're inconsistent. But if you ask them, God has predestinated absolutely, that's where the word absoluter comes from, all things that come to pass. Nothing comes to pass, including sin, that God did not ordain and will and bring about. The rewards and punishments of God in this life are unconditional. Your knowledge of the Bible and of God's will is unconditional. God gives it to you because God has absolutely predestinated you will have the level of knowledge that you have. Pitiful. We call them fatalists. They're known as the absoluter segment of the primitive Baptists. Well, now those absoluters differ with those who maintain that rewards and punishments in this life are conditional. I mean, if you do what God says, He'll reward you. If you disobey what God says, He will punish you. We believe that. The absoluters call the primitive Baptists that hold that position the conditionalists because they believe that rewards and punishments in this life are conditional depending upon your personal obedience. We agree with that. So I guess we'd be conditionalists when it comes to rewards and punishments in this life. There's a third category of primitive Baptists known as the progressive primitive Baptists. They're the ones who couldn't really stay away from those inventions, and they've begun to bring them back in. You know, they pull in the piano, they pull in the Sunday schools, they pull in the ladies teaching in Sunday school, teaching the kiddies, they pull in the Bible seminaries and mission societies. They're known as the progressives among the primitive Baptists. Most of them hold a moderate Calvinistic position on salvation. The largest group of primitive Baptists are the Negro primitive Baptist churches, which are about 125 years old and number a couple thousand across the United States. They're basically Arminian in doctrine and hold most of the inventions that the so-called primitives spoke against and stood against 150 years ago. Those are the four categories of primitive Baptists. Now, the primitive Baptists aren't the only ones who hold the sovereignty of God in salvation. You can find other churches scattered across this world known as the strict Baptists, who deny gospel means in eternal salvation, who hold to closed local communion only, closer to us than the primitives in some points. You'll find them among the particular Baptists who take that name to continue describing themselves the same way the Baptists were in England 300 years ago. Particular, meaning that Christ died only for His particular people. Among the regular Baptists, you will find some who hold the doctrine of salvation similar to what we teach. Few and far between, but some. And then you'll find a group of Baptists known as the Predestinarian Baptists, primarily in Canada, who hold the same doctrine, but who are not known as primitive Baptists. What I want to deal with now are a number of distinguishing differences between us 
and the primitive Baptists. Now, being that you've got the absolute or primitive Baptists, the conditionalist primitive Baptists, and the progressives, and the Negro-Arminian primitive Baptists, what group are we primarily aiming at? We're primarily aiming at those known as the conditionalist primitive Baptists. Why? Because they're the middle of the rotors when it comes to practical obedience in this life. And they hold the same doctrine of salvation in general among most of the churches that we do. That salvation to heaven and immortal glory is purely by the free grace and operation of God. Man does not cooperate at all. He's totally passive in it. Man's activity is involved in his conversion or coming to an understanding and obedience of the truth. First of all, the primitive Baptists claim a name and practically worship a name that the Scriptures know nothing about. If you were to ask a primitive Baptist minister who they would be required to rebaptize, they would tell you anyone that's not a primitive Baptist. Well, now, where in the world does the word primitive Baptist have anything to do with the person worshiping Christ in spirit and in truth and having had received a proper baptism? The apostles knew nothing of primitive Baptists. John Gill, who they claimed to be one of their fathers, never heard of primitive Baptists. What do they mean? Did you know that your pastor would have to be rebaptized if he wanted to join a primitive Baptist church? Why? Because he hasn't been baptized by a primitive Baptist yet. The Bible knows nothing of that name, nothing at all. Churches in Scripture are known by their geographical location and or who owns them. You say, well, who owns the churches? Christ and God. The church of the Thessalonians was known as the church of God. Read it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. In Romans chapter 16, we read about the churches of Christ. And they weren't Alexander Campbell's variety either. The churches of Christ in Romans chapter 16 are simply a designation of the ownership of those churches. They're owned by Christ. They're Christ's churches. We're a church of Christ, and we use that expression. We're a church of God. We're God's church. We're known by our geographical location, the Greenville Church, because we're located in Greenville, South Carolina, just as the Jerusalem Church or the Church at Jerusalem was known by its city of location. The Church at Rome the church at Corinth, the church at Ephesus, the church at Thyatira. That's the only designation you'll find in Scripture. The apostles knew nothing about a Baptist church. We are Baptist by practice. That means we baptize believers upon a profession of their faith by burying them in water. We're Baptists. But nowhere do the apostles ever apply that name to, the, to a church and call it a Baptist church. Churches are named by their location or by their ownership, that is, of Christ or of God. Now, the primitive Baptists will take all of their churches, or the ones they approve of, put them all together and call it the primitive Baptist church. They'll take a thousand churches in a hundred different associations and call the whole thing the primitive Baptist church. Nowhere in Scripture are churches called the church, in the sense that the primitive Baptists use that word. Churches don't make a church. Churches make 
churches. When Jesus Christ addressed the seven churches of Asia, he didn't say for John to write the church of Asia or the Baptist church of Asia or the primitive Baptist church of Asia. He told John to write the seven churches of Asia because a church is all the larger God's institution on earth gets. The local church is all the bigger it gets. We are all we need. We're all that Jesus Christ wants. We are the body of Christ. And the promise of Christ that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church will hold true if we remain faithful and the gates of hell do not prevail against us. That's all it takes is one body of believers faithful to Christ where the candlestick is still burning. That is where the Spirit of God is still indwelling a congregation of believers. Anytime you hear a primitive Baptist say to you, talk to you about the primitive Baptist church, ask him, which primitive Baptist church? The absoluters? The progressives? The Negroes? Which primitive Baptist church is the primitive Baptist church? Then you'll find out who they mean. They mean the primitive Baptist churches they approve of. If you come from a church they approve of, your baptism is valid. If you come from a primitive Baptist church they don't approve of, your baptism is invalid. You say, well, do they keep lists of these churches? No, because it varies from minister to minister and from association to association. You never know who you'd be accepted by until you go try it. Now, I've asked the question, would you rebaptize me? And yes, they would. They'd rebaptize me because I wasn't baptized into a primitive Baptist church. If you don't have a piece of wood in front of your building with the paint peeling off it, and it says primitive Baptist on it, you need to be rebaptized. According to the vast majority of those that call themselves primitive Baptists. All the bigger God's institution gets in this world is the local church. And for you, that's the Greenville Church, the congregation of the Spirit indwells in Greenville, South Carolina. Point number two. Primitive Baptists teach by their ministry that the second person in the Trinity is a begotten God. Now, I want to make something very clear, especially to those listening to this tape. I believe that 90 Five to 99% of all primitive Baptists believe the doctrine of the sonship of Jesus Christ exactly as we believe it. But their ministers, including who they consider their best ministers, have taken it upon themselves to take a modern position on that subject in which they believe that the Word of God, the second person in the Trinity, is a begotten God. You say, who did that? Elder Sonny Piles out of Graham, Texas. Sonny Piles wrote a series of articles printed in their largest primitive Baptist publication defending the eternal sonship of Jesus Christ, the same doctrine that Constantine had approved at the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. that originated from the pen of Origen the Pagan in 250 A.D., the same doctrine that Jehovah's Witnesses used to deny that Jesus Christ is God. If you were to ask the average primitive Baptist, who is the Son of God? Why, they'd answer as quickly as you would, it's Jesus of Nazareth. 
If you were to say, when did Jesus of Nazareth come into existence? They would answer as quickly as you would. He came into existence when he was born of the Virgin Mary. He was the eternal God made flesh at the incarnation and thus became the Son of God. Now that's what we teach. In the beginning was God the highest, God the Word, and God the Holy Ghost, a perfect trinity in the Godhead. None of them begotten, none of them proceeding. Elder Sonny Pyle says, In the beginning was God the highest. Then He begat by eternal generation God the Son. Then the two of those got together and give procession to God the Holy Ghost. You say no one would maintain that doctrine. Everyone will maintain that doctrine who puts the least degree of faith and confidence in the creeds and confessions of faith of men. <clears throat> they must. Because every creed and every confession of men that I have been able to get my hands upon, which is quite a few, all maintain the Roman doctrine, the Roman Catholic doctrine of that eternal sonship, or that God in eternity past generated the personality of the second person in the Trinity, and therefore He's called the Son of God. No, my friends, the Son of God is Jesus, the man who was born of the Virgin Mary. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and then we beheld the glory of the only begotten Son of God. No one ever beheld the Son of God prior to that. Galatians chapter 4 tells us that the Son was made of a woman. Now, if He was made in eternity, would you tell me the name of that woman? Sonny Piles has taken it upon himself to be the spokesman for the primitive Baptists, along with others, and maintain that anyone holding the doctrine we hold to is a heretic. If we believe that Jesus of Nazareth, the man Christ Jesus, is the Son of God by His incarnation, we are heretics. They took it upon themselves to attack us. We'll take the charge. We will stand where the Word of God stands, and that is that Jesus is the Son of God and no one else is the Son of God. The Word is not the Son of God in any sense of the Word. The Word is only the Son of God by becoming Jesus of Nazareth, the man, at the incarnation of the Virgin. We believe in the Trinity, God the Highest, God the Word, and God the Holy Ghost. And we believe in the inferiority and submission and subjection of the man Christ Jesus to that Godhead. And it is that man Christ Jesus that is the Son of God, begotten in the womb of the Virgin Mary. The primitive Baptists hold to the Philadelphia Confession of Faith of 1742. They sometimes hold to the London Confession of Faith of 1689 and they have restated the positions of those two creeds in 1900 at Fulton, Kentucky, when they said, we believe that God the Son was begotten by eternal generation, as they quoted all the church creeds descending from Rome. When it comes to the doctrine of the person of Jesus Christ, the primitive Baptists are in error on the person of Christ. They are one of the daughters of Rome when it comes to the doctrine of the person of Jesus Christ. Now that is a strong statement, but anyone who denies that statement doesn't know the origin of the eternal sonship doctrine with origin. That's a small O and a capital O, the man origin. 
came up with that doctrine, and he knew very well what it meant, that it meant that the second person in the Trinity was subordinate in his deity to the first person. We totally deny that. The word was God, period. Jesus Christ is the Son of God by the fact that he took upon himself human nature and was born of a woman by which God supernaturally caused the conception to occur. Thus, God is his Father. It can be boiled down to two questions. Any of you who want to be able to summarize it, who is the Son of God and when did Jesus of Nazareth come into existence? If you ask the question, who is the Son of God, the answer must be Jesus. When did Jesus come into existence? 2,000 years ago when he was born, the Virgin Mary. If you can boil it down to those two questions, you have it. Anyone listening to this tape, simply ask your minister those two questions. You'll have him. If he says that Jesus is the Son of God and that Jesus came into existence when he was born of the Virgin Mary, he holds the doctrine the church at Greenville holds, the incarnate sonship of Jesus Christ. But if you want to test your minister and find out whether he truly holds that doctrine, tell him at his next associational meeting to bring forth an item of recommendation that Sonny Piles be condemned as a heretic and that that notice of Sonny Piles' heresy be printed in the Primitive Baptist Papers. You'll find out just how sincerely your minister holds to the incarnate sonship of Christ. If your minister is afraid he might be challenged to a debate, tell him that you know of a minister that will help him out and that he can be reached at area code 803-292-2123. It would be a pleasure to defend the person of Jesus Christ against an enemy of Christ who wants to teach the same heresy Rome has taught for 1,600 years. Primitive Baptists deny that the King James Version you hold in your hands is the perfect, inspired Word of God. You say, I didn't know that. I thought most Primitive Baptists use the King James Version. Yes, they do. Do you know why they use it? Because it's primitive. They use the King James Version because it's old. But if you will question the ministers, you'll find that a great number of them do not believe the King James Version to be perfect, the inspired Word of God. Now, some of them do. Your particular minister may believe that. Some of the ministers you come in contact with may believe that the King James Version is perfect. But if you want to find out where they stand, go back and read the editions of the Christian Baptist published from the end of 1983 through the middle of 1984. And you'll find that many primitive Baptist ministers hold that the King James Version is the best translation it's the most reliable. It's the Word of God, but it's not perfect. There are errors in it, and there have been errors in it since it was first printed in 1611. We deny that doctrine. We maintain that by the evidence of its fruit, by the evidence of its in lack of internal errors, and by the promise that God would preserve His Word, we have the perfect, inspired Word of God. Without error, they recommend and use other translations to shed light and meaning upon the text of the King James Version. They even use the New International Version to do so. There isn't a Baptist who can use the NIV 
to shed any light in the doctrine of baptism, but to show that we ought to sprinkle. The NIV totally corrupts the doctrine of baptism in every place where it can. Those false versions don't shed light. They shed corruption and perversion, which is their whole design, by the master of all Scripture corruption, the devil himself. That is why we don't fellowship. That is why we don't preach primitive Baptist ministers. That's why we ask for people to come out of them. They're teaching the false person of Christ, and many times they teach and hold to other translations being useful and the King James Version not being perfect. If you were to be among primitive Baptist churches, you would find they do not practice New Testament discipline of their membership. The New Testament teaches that we're to mark those that cause divisions and offenses, offenses contrary to Paul's doctrine, that we're to avoid them, that we're to have no fellowship, that we're not to commune with, that we're not to eat with, that we're not to company with, those who don't hold Paul's tradition. Now, what's Paul's tradition? Paul's tradition is everything contained in the epistles that Paul wrote, one point of which is that we ought not to forsake the assembly of ourselves together. For those of you among in primitive Baptist churches, how many of your members have not been in attendance for the last month, the last three months, haven't communed the last three times you've communed, haven't been there in a year. What kind of a body is that? Is that a body that's a glory to Christ or are half of the members absent? They ought to be excluded. If you want to show yourself to be a New Testament church, find those members that haven't been there, pursue them, and if they don't have a reason for not being there, bring them before the church for exclusion for not maintaining Paul's tradition. We've done it here in Greenville, and we'll continue to do it here in Greenville. Why? Because the pastor of the Greenville church is a dictator, or because Paul was a dictator? Paul was a dictator who dictated that I had better make sure that the membership of this church is here every time they possibly can be. Peace is often sought at the expense of purity when it comes to discipline in primitive Baptist churches. If the person is known well enough, the person sheds enough tears and claims enough repentance, the sin will be overlooked. The Apostle Paul said that if certain public sins are named once among a church, that person is to be put out. It is irrelevant if they are repentant for what they did. I mean, if someone goes out and commits adultery, it doesn't matter how many tears they shed. If that adultery is known in the community, if it's known in the congregation, it doesn't matter how sorry they are for what they did. It doesn't matter at all. Paul said, put him out. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, read the whole chapter. You say, well, that man wasn't repentant. Listen, friends, that man was so repentant, Paul wrote a year later in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and was afraid the man was going to die from his sorrow. But he sat outside that communion for a year as a warning to anyone else who would try to play around against God's law and as a warning to the community that the churches of Christ do not condone or put up with sin. Primitive Baptists don't maintain a hardline approach like that in most cases. If you want to find out, then ask your minister to bring before the next business meeting of your church or association 
all those who haven't been there in the last three months and to exclude them for forsaking Paul's tradition. Primitive Baptists emphasize and serve associations that have authority over the churches. I've already stated that the largest institution in this world is a local <coughs> church. There is nothing above it. There is no value to derive from anything above it. Anytime you go contrary to God's law, you're giving up value, not obtaining value. You'd be amazed at the excuses I've heard about all the good things that come from association meetings. Forget it, friends. When you go against the Word of God, you're giving up value. You're not obtaining value. Right. Yes, but we get to hear other preachers. God didn't give you other preachers. He gave you your pastor. And I'll get to his duties in just a minute. You say, but we get to see many people together and we get to hear better singing. Well, if you'd get evangelistic in your own community, you'd have more people at your own services. Well, I call their association meetings look-alive meetings. If they didn't have them, they'd look dead. They've got to get together once a year and call everyone from a 10-state region around their city to come together so they can look alive. The biggest look-alive meeting of the year is held in Cincinnati, Ohio. LeSayre Bradley gets together church. Oh, they may have visitors from 30 states together there. And oh, they have the greatest look-alive meeting. And you say, you're being sacrilegious. You're being too sarcastic. Why don't you read the newspaper, the Primitive Baptist newspaper accounts of that meeting as they tell you God is blessing Zion? But it took 30 states to draw enough to fill the room. They're dead. If you're alive, why don't you show some fruit in your own community instead of having to call on other churches and their members to forsake their own assemblies and travel to your annual meeting. The Primitive Baptists have annual meetings where everyone is invited. It doesn't matter if you have to give up the services in your own church, you go anyway. There are Primitive Baptists who do nothing but travel from annual meeting to annual meeting across this country. Some of you know them. That isn't what Christ has called us to do. He's called us to serve the local church and to be there every time the doors open. The association becomes a super church. It becomes a, a structure above the churches. That association, through a moderator, which Scripture knows nothing of, can declare a church in disorder, and they be disfellowshipped. The minister can be blackballed through the authority of that association so that his ministerial powers are taken away. He can no longer ordain. He can no longer constitute churches because he doesn't have the rest of the association cronies to do it with him. The associations are an instrument of the devil to take authority away from Christ's local churches, which is the largest institution Christ wants in this world. Anytime you get above it, you are beginning to have lords over the flock of God and to imbibe the doctrine of the Nicolaitans which doctrine is to have authority over the laity. The associations tend to be nothing but a large church for communion. While there are some moderators that claim their associations are more powerful than the church, are greater than the church, are more valuable than the church. What the association serves for is a vehicle by which you can commune in any church. The average primitive Baptist church only has the Lord's Supper once a year. So therefore, if you're in an association with 12 churches, you get to have the Lord's Supper once a month if you'll travel among your association churches. 
When you walk in and fellowship with them, they don't know if you've committed adultery. They don't know if you've been forsaking the assembly. They don't know if you've been a reviler of brethren in your home church. All they know is that you're a member of the association and sit down and commune with us, brother. Well, the Lord knows nothing about that. Now, if the Apostle Paul travels from the Kahuki Association to the Bear Creek Association, I'd advise you to commune with them. But I haven't heard of that being done yet. The Apostle Paul was communed wherever he went because he founded those churches. He was the father of everyone there. As far as their knowledge of Christ, we can read that in Acts chapter 20. But I'll tell you one thing. Luke didn't commune at Troas. And if you can read English, you can see that plainly in the first few verses of Acts chapter 20. Associating together is man's idea of getting himself a name so that he be not scattered abroad across the face of the earth. Did you hear me? Associating together is man's idea to get himself a name so that he will not be scattered abroad across the face of the earth. Who was the first association moderator? Nimrod. Nimrod was the first association moderator. He had them all associate together to build the Tower of Babel, lest we be scattered abroad. Listen, friends, Christ's flock has always been scattered abroad. They've had to depend upon one another in their own congregation to make it from day to day and from week to week. The minute you begin associating together, you're doing something contrary to Scripture. God has no place for the institution of the devil. You try to tell me what the difference is between a diocese and an association. A diocese is a group of churches designated by regional location with authority over local church buildings and operations of the Roman Catholics. What is the difference between that and the association of primitive Baptist churches? You say, well, I, I can think of something else that associates them with Rome, and that's calling all their churches the primitive Baptist church. And so do the Catholics. The Roman Catholic Church. They don't know much about their local churches. That's not the doctrine of Rome. The doctrine of Rome is the universal church. And so are the primitive Baptists. The universal church of all primitive Baptists that agree with us. Primitive Baptists, and I'm moving on to a new point, are doctrinal and or practical fatalists, though they don't like the term. Now, the absolute or primitive Baptists, we don't need to spend more than one sentence. They claim to be fatalists by their own doctrine of absolute predestination. The conditionalist primitive Baptists are fatalists by their actions. They would deny being fatalists and that God has absolutely predestinated all things that come to pass, but they act like God has absolutely predestinated all things that come to pass. Their type of evangelism has been characterized by storefront evangelism. Our church is available like a storefront. The goods are there for anyone to see. All they have to do is come in the door. That's how the primitive Baptists evangelize. Our church was there. If they wanted to be part of it, they could have come and visited. If you go into most cities, the only way you would find the primitive Baptist church is to drive back country roads. And I mean back country roads. 
and look for that little sign with the reeds growing up around it, with the paint peeling off, that says, The Possum River Primitive Baptist Church, founded 1827. And the building looks like it was founded in 1827, and not much has been done since. You say you're being very nasty with the Primitive Baptists. Drive around and prove out what I'm saying. You say, well, that's not all of them. There are some nice buildings. There's a nice building in Atlanta. There's a nice building in Cincinnati. Friends, exceptions don't nullify rules. Drive around the countryside, and I'll tell you that you'll find hundreds of churches exactly as I described. I well remember the first primitive Baptist church I attended. It took me months to find where this church was, to find anyone who could tell me when they met. They met one Sunday morning a month. They were located between Manchester and Tecumseh, Michigan, along the Raisin River. I drove down there one time to make sure I could find the place before Sunday came, to make sure I could find it. And sure enough, there's the typical one-room schoolhouse with an outhouse out back with a sign out front that said Primitive Baptist. I finally got a hold of the church clerk. They had no pastor. Well, they claimed to have a pastor. But I got a hold of the church clerk who lived about 75 miles away and who said that if I'd be there on the third Sunday of the month at 10 o'clock, they'd have a service. Well, I was there with my family, totally ignored by the minister and his congregation. Where'd the minister come from? I th you say, I thought you said they didn't have one. Well, he was from Ohio. He pastored several churches, and it was his trip on the third Sunday to go to Michigan to preach one service in the morning that three-quarters of you wouldn't have been able to understand because you've never heard a primitive Baptist minister sing before. It's called the sing-song approach to preaching. You don't say anything worth hearing. You just say the things that they've heard a hundred times before, but you say it in a sing-song voice. Well, now we listened to that, and after the service, no one said anything to us. They spread some tables under the old oak tree, threw out some food, and didn't invite us, and we left. The minister never came and shook my hand or even said he was glad I was there. Now, some primitive Baptists may be saying that was an atypical church. Let me tell you about the last primitive Baptist church that I visited. I visited that church about a year or a year and a half ago, and the same thing happened. A couple families there who happened to know me or know about me did greet me. The two ministers that were there didn't say a word to me. Not a word. It was hard to tell who the ministers were until some that I knew came and told me who they were because I arrived early, as my habit is, and saw two men standing in their shirt sleeves in front of the building, chain-smoking cigarettes. And I said, now what kind of a church is this? And after I got inside, they told me those were the two ministers that were going to preach that evening. I'll get to Christian liberty in just a minute. You wouldn't be able to find a, the, the average primitive Baptist church unless you were good in a four-wheel drive truck at traversing back country roads and looking for little old one-room schoolhouses that look decrepit. You won't find them in the yellow pages and you won't find them in the newspaper. Storefront evangelism. You don't like it? Lump it. If you can find it, why don't you come on in? They never go and invite you. It's up to you to find them. You say, you're being so sarcastic. I am being sarcastic. I'm not being as sarcastic as I would like to be. 
Why are you so sarcastic? Because I am jealous for a few souls out there who want to worship God a better way. And that is in spirit and in truth according to apostolic doctrine. Let me tell you, Aquila and Priscilla weren't sitting around in bug tussle with some little decrepit schoolhouse building. They were out looking for Apollos and pulling them aside and bringing them home and converting men. I will give a hundred dollars for every primitive Baptist minister that can be proven to me has ever been engaged in evangelism. Try me. Anyone who's here or anyone who hears this sermon, by evangelism, I mean going and preaching the gospel to those who have not heard it before without the meeting being called, sponsored, and arranged by another little primitive Baptist church. I'll take the risk. You say, what does that have to do with fatalism? That's practical fatalism. No evangelism? God has called them to evangelize. I mean, it sounds like if the Lord doesn't bring them to find that church in the back 40, it must not be His will for them to be there. We're not going to go try to find them. All evangeliz Evangelism to a primitive Baptist is seeing how many people you can get from other churches to visit your annual meeting once a year. That, that's evangelism to them. They don't evangelize those who've never heard the gospel because they don't have anything to say to those people. All they've got to say are that Jesus died for you, Jesus loves you, and you're part of the old Baptist and you've got the truth. That's in four sentences, four phrases, that's basically all you get from a primitive Baptist sermon. You say, well, you're just being nasty against preachers now because you're jealous. I am jealous, but not for the reasons you may be thinking. I'm jealous for the souls that have to be under that kind of a ministry. They don't exhort their congregations with authority. I mean, when you meet once a month in the morning, how much can you exhort a congregation? How much can you follow up on that congregation and press for practical obedience in the lives of those members? When was the last time those of you who've been in primitive Baptist churches or those of you who are have heard your pastor rail on Christian character and teach Bible economics and other subjects that the Word of God places a premium upon. Not that I dream up, but that God emphasizes. You won't ever hear it. Congregations of primitive Baptists are characterized by lethargy and high-mindedness. Lethargy, they do nothing. High-mindedness, we've got the truth. Why show any interest in visitors or anyone else outside of our little number? Primitive Baptists, have a ministry that does not follow the pattern and teachings of Paul. That's why they'll not preach in this pulpit. Less than 10% of primitive Baptist ministers follow Paul's command and ordinance that they give themselves wholly and fully to the work of the ministry and they be supported fully by their congregations without working in the world. Less than 10%. The vast majority hold a full-time job, often work overtime, and pastor three churches. Think about it. What kind of a job can you do? Ministers are to give themselves wholly to the work. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. Ministers are to not be entangled in the affairs of this world. 2 Timothy 2, 2 through 4. But that's not what primitive Baptist ministers do. 
And here's where they even depart from their confessions of faith and creeds. The London Confession, the Philadelphia Confession, the Fulton Confession of 1900 all teach that ministers ought to give themselves fully to the work of the ministry and be supported by their congregations. That is what we practice here. Primitive Baptist ministers don't oversee the flock which is among them, but travel among a large number of churches as traveling salesmen. You take the average primitive Baptist minister, he works a full-time job, he's got a church he preaches to once a month, maybe twice a month, maybe he's supposed to preach there four times a month, but half of the year he'll be gone preaching in other churches at their annual meetings. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 2, take the oversight of the flock of God which is scattered abroad among ten different associations that you're fellowshipping with. Peter said, take the oversight of the flock of God which is among you. For any of you primitive Baptists who are able to read your primitive Baptist newspapers, look at the itinerary of Elder Sonny Piles. No wonder he ends up believing the eternal sonship of Christ. He hasn't been home long enough to study his Bible. More than half the time he's gone preaching in other men's churches and participating of their labors, something that Paul said he would never do. I wonder what his church is like back in Graham, Texas. I wonder if anyone's ever been there to see if there is one. What can a man do when he's not there more than half the year, but he's out preaching to someone else's congregation? It's easy to do that kind of preaching, all you need. And anybody who's heard that man and others enough times know that all you need is about 30 canned sermons and you can entertain the country. You go sit at home and try to take care of all the needs of your congregation, you'll have to develop a few more than 30. And they're going to get tired of the tin can approach to preaching. They're going to want something new and something meeting their needs and something practical. But when you're running around, all you have to do is talk about the grace of God, predestination, election, and the primitive Baptists of the true church. And you can keep annual meetings alive as long as they'll invite you back. God has ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel and give themselves wholly to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. Ninety percent of the primitive Baptist ministers do not give themselves to much reading at all, much exhortation, and much doctrine. And once you met them and talked to them about anything in depth, you'd find that out for yourself. Just ask their congregations, and you'd find that to be true. Primitive Baptists do not follow the New Testament regarding church government. They ordain deacons when they have no need for deacons. Deacons were set up in the New Testament to take care of manual work, specifically the serving of widows' tables. While the average Primitive Baptist church does have some widows, because the men have long died out, they don't have widows in need of sustenance, but they'll ordain five, ten deacons in a church that may only have 40 or 50 members. Four deacons in a church that may have 16 members. No need for the deacons, and yet the deacons are made the guardians of the pulpit. If that minister decides that he can't handle three churches a month and wants to lower his requirements to two, the deacons are left. 
with inviting other ministers through newspaper advertisements among primitive Baptist periodicals to get a new minister. That's not the way God set up pastors. Pastors are overseers. When a pastor leaves one congregation, he had better put a man in charge of that congregation. Primitive Baptists use the church to call ministers. You find in your New Testament where a church ever called a pastor. Please, would you show me where a church ever called a pastor? As soon as you can show me that, I'll show you a flock of sheep that called themselves a shepherd. What did Paul say to Titus? I left thee in Crete that thou mightest go among the churches and take a vote for who they want as pastor? Or did he say in Titus chapter 1 and verse 5, I left thee in Crete that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting and ordain elders in every church? Titus by himself were to put men in responsible positions based upon his evaluation of their qualifications, not on the church's evaluation. Rules of decorum are protected and practiced even when those rules go against the pastor. Some pastors have their hands locked when it comes to a business meeting in a church. What if a church wants to change its name from the Possum River Primitive Baptist Church to the Possum River Church, which would be a scriptural designation? What if they wanted to do that and so they went to a church business meeting to vote on it? In some rules of decorum, the pastor wouldn't be allowed to vote. In others, his vote counts no more than another member. In some, the moderator is the one who casts the tie-breaking vote. What kind of church government is that? It's the church government of Rome. Men over the Lord's flock other than God's appointed pastor who's to make a decision in matters like that. If the church is in doctrinal error and needs a change of name, the pastor should do it. There doesn't need to be a request. There doesn't need to be a vote. It's done. Anyone who doesn't like it can leave and separate from the minister in error if they have a biblical basis for doing so. Ministers are forbidden to ordain or constitute churches individually. A primitive Baptist minister cannot go out and ordain a man to the ministry without the use of five, ten, or a hundred other elders and deacons. Now, why deacons are even involved in ordination, I have no idea. Deacons don't have the ability to even come close to picking a man for the ministry. The reason they're in their office is because they prove by their abilities they're not qualified for the bishop. What in the world are a group of deacons picking a minister for and then ordaining him? Paul said that Titus could do the job by himself. And when I preach to you on the ministry, I emphasize the importance of this point. When a primitive Baptist minister believes that he is unable to ordain a minister by, another minister by himself or constitute a church by himself, he is then placed under the bondage, fear, and servitude of that association and its ministers, that he has got to maintain fellowship with them or his ministerial authority and power will be taken away. We here at the Greenville Church stand on the independence of every local church and the authority of every single minister to do everything that God has ever asked any minister to do, to ordain and establish churches according to the leading of the Spirit of God. He needs no ministers to do it, and he needs no deacons to do it by all means.
But when you have that other doctrine taught, you're under the fear of the association. You think about the young ministerial gifts among the primitive Baptists who want to do what's right, but realize that if they fall out of favor of the other ministers among the association or in the primitive Baptist church, they will not be able to ordain anyone in their church. They will not be able to evangelize and establish another church. They're hamstrung. So what happens most of the time? They bow to the association and they're sucked into its traditionalism that kills and destroys. The primitive Baptists practice and defend the practice of the holy days of Rome. Old and New Testament in the Scriptures deny that Christians should have anything to do with paganism. Halloween, Christmas, and Easter are obviously pagan holy days, religious days, that adopt pagan customs, pagan practices in the so-called worship of Christ. God condemns it, Deuteronomy 12, 29 through 32. He condemns adopting pagan customs in His worship. The primitive Baptists practice those days. They claim to be enemies of Rome, and yet they practice Rome's days themselves. We shall have nothing to do with those days. And anyone among the primitive Baptists who wants to come out and worship God in spirit and in truth should have nothing to do with those days. This subject, the subject of the sonship of Christ, the subject of God's ministry and how they ought to behave, I have all dealt, I have dealt with at much greater length in individual sermons pertaining to those subjects. Here we have to cover it in brief. Primitive Baptists measure true faith and practice by your loyalty to a confession of faith rather than the Word of God. The Philadelphia Confession of Faith is appealed to many times more than the Word of God. What granddaddy believed is more important than what the Word of God may have to say. The favorite verse of the Primitive Baptist, if I can pick one, I believe this is obviously the most favorite verse, is Jeremiah 6, 16. Let us seek the old paths. The Primitive Baptist motto is to seek for that which is old. Therefore, many of their churches will not have running water or indoor plumbing. They'll continue to use an outhouse because grandfather used an outhouse. Churches have split and had divisions over whether they ought to put a toilet inside the building because granddaddy didn't have this invention in his building that he worshipped in. Listen, friends, I don't want to be as primitive as granddaddy. I want to be as primitive as the apostles. The older, the better. That's the primitive Baptist mentality. No, the more scriptural, the better. If you want to talk about old, let's go all the way back to the apostles. If you want to talk about old, you better not use the word primitive Baptist. It's only 150 years old. If you want to talk about old, you better not call yourself a Baptist church. That's only 300 years old. You better go all the way back to the apostles and call yourself the Church of Christ, which meets at Greenville, South Carolina or the Church of Christ, which meets beside Possum River. Then you'd be scriptural. Old means nothing. Old is traditionalism. We do it because it's old? Then you're doing it because it's tradition and habit. You're doing just what Jesus Christ said, in vain do men worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men, the traditions of men, that's why I'm calling on all who hear this sermon 
to come out from among false worship and to worship God according to apostolic tradition, Paul's tradition, not Granddaddy's tradition, not Gilbert Beebe's tradition, not John Gill's tradition, Paul's tradition. Gill's gospel, Beebe's gospel, Pyle's gospel means nothing. Paul's gospel and Paul's tradition is what counts. Who cares what our forefathers said unless what they said was in agreement with Scripture? If you want to trace your fathers back, you'll end up in Rome because she is the mother church. Unless you trace it through Scripture by faith all the way back to the apostolic tradition, which is the only tradition that preceded Rome in its formal name. Primitive Baptist teaching is extremely partial in the Scriptures. It's weak. It's unfruitful. You see, that's a strong statement to make about other ministers and what they preach. Listen, you go listen to enough Primitive Baptist preaching and here's what you're going to get. You're going to get experience. It's been my experience, brethren. You're going to get feelings. This morning I feel, brethren. You're going to get spiritualizing, which is taking a text of Scripture and coming up with your own dreamed up, drummed up, spiritualized meaning of the text instead of comparing it with what the rest of the Word of God said and teaching something specific with it. And all you're going to get is predestination and the grace of God in salvation. Am I making a mockery of the grace of God in salvation? No, I'm just saying that the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we ought to live soberly and righteously in this present world. Did you hear me? The grace of God is worthless unless you teach behind it what the grace of God teaches us to do. Titus chapter 2. It teaches us to live soberly and righteously. And you'll hear precious little of that among the primitive Baptists. Spiritualizing. Almost every sermon will begin with some obscure text in the Old Testament where they'll take some little phrase like a handful of barley and try to preach a sermon from it. That's why most of the members don't bring their Bibles to church. There's no reason to flip. There's very little Bible studying or Bible teaching done. It's spiritualizing by men who have worked all week long and are simply getting up there and singing a song that is pleasant to the ears of things they already know about what God has done for them without laboring through that book to find out what God requires of them. And that's all the difference between the grace of God and the grace of God turned into lasciviousness. You simply emphasize the grace of God without teaching the requirements of the grace of God and you are teaching the grace of God turned into lasciviousness. Doctrine on many subjects is unknown. If you were to ask the average primitive Baptist member where their pastor stands on the millennium, where he stands on the Antichrist, the interpretation of Matthew 24, they'd say, what? They wouldn't know. He doesn't preach on subjects like that. You know why? Because subjects like that take hours and hours of study. And when you're working 40 hours a week entangled in the affairs of this world, you don't have time to study the book of Daniel and Matthew 24. 
And because they don't study enough, you wouldn't believe the wild doctrines that come out of the primitive Baptists. Why, the only, the only primitive Baptist that's ever written a systematic theology, Elder R.V. Serrells out of Texas, why, the poor man believed in the age of accountability that it was 20 years old. I'll prove it to you. I have his book, his systematic theology, endorsed by Elder Sonny Piles. But there's an age of accountability, and it's 20. Isn't that nice, mothers? Now you know that your children are going to heaven if they die at 19. It's just after that that they're going to be held responsible. The age of accountability, supposedly, by someone who maintains unconditional salvation. You have Elder Norman Cooper out of Texas teaching that you are saved and redeemed by the blood of Christ shed in the Garden of Gethsemane, not by the blood of on the cross. He has challenged any primitive Baptist minister to debate him publicly over that issue, that redemption takes place in the Garden of Gethsemane and not by the blood on the cross. They haven't taken him up on it yet. Where are they? Where are they? I mean, there's no hellers out there that believe in no hell, universal salvation. See, if you emphasize unconditional salvation enough, See, Elder R.V. Sarles says everyone that dies below the age of 20 going to heaven, it's just a small step beyond that. Everyone's going to be there. And so you teach hell as simply describing the evil afflictions that God's children undergo in this world. And you preach hell right out of the Bible. Listen, my friends, there's going to be millions cooking in that place. And they're going to be characterized by those that don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's our duty to obey. The primitive Baptists are dying. The Bible says that a, the body without the spirit is dead. The primitive Baptists are dying. You say, well, that's your opinion. No, it's not my opinion. Any primitive Baptist who's honest will admit that. You look at the average church, the average age of the membership, 60 or above. They'd all qualify in 1 Timothy chapter 5 if they were widows. Because they're all old. Once this generation or maybe the next are gone, there'll be very few left who will even claim the name of Primitive Baptist. It was just a year ago that their number one newspaper, the Christian Baptist, published a probing article on the spiritual declension of the Primitive Baptist. They know it. though They can see it. I mean, when you go to an association and you hear ten churches stand one at a time and say, we took one in by letter, Three left by letter and four died. Year after year after year, something's wrong. There'll be fruit and growth where the Spirit of God is at. The body without the Spirit is dead. What about Christian liberty? What about that last primitive Baptist church I visited? seeing those two ministers out in front of that church chain-smoking cigarettes. If you can smoke one cigarette a month, one cigarette every other night after your evening meal, and you're able to control any addiction to that thing and not get under its power, more power to you. You can't raise a single Bible verse that condemns a cigarette more than you can raise a Bible verse that condemns every candy bar you eat because a candy bar is more detrimental to your health than a cigarette. But Paul did say, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. And when you ask those ministers why they smoke, and if they smoke because they have to, they'll tell you that they're addicted to it. 
They're addicted to those cigarettes. They don't practice Christian liberty. Here they are taking something that is a matter of liberty, but they're under the power of it, which then violates God's principle. Then they'll stand in the pulpit and allow deacons in that church to be members of the Masonic Lodge, considering that a matter of Christian liberty. Listen, friends, being a member of a secret organization that claims Baal to be its God is not a matter of Christian liberty. Wherefore, brethren, flee idolatry, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 14. But how many churches have good old Masonic brethren among their membership? Much more could be said on each one of these points. I have preached on these points to this congregation at length, such as the Sonship of Christ, such as the ministry and how it's to be ordained and the qualifications for it, such as the holy days of Rome and that we're to have no part of it. But I have covered a number of issues that the average primitive Baptist church stands for, which we stand against. We are seeking to simply worship God according to what Paul taught. We want to worship God in spirit and in truth according to apostolic tradition, not the tradition of the Philadelphia Confession of 1742, not John Gill's tradition or gospel or doctrine, but the Apostle Paul's gospel, his doctrine, and his tradition. And we want to hold that steadfast. Any primitive Baptists who have heard this message, your choice is simple. God is requiring you to prove all things. I have accused your church of being guilty of a number of things. Prove me right or wrong. If you can prove that on every point I've raised from the Word of God and more information and more scriptural support is available, but if you can prove that your church stands wholeheartedly in agreement with the scriptures on every one of those points, I want to know about it. I'd like to know your pastor. I will personally fellowship with your minister. But if you find that your church holds to some of the error on some of these points, it is your duty to discard that which is false, to mark it, to avoid it, as Paul said in Romans 16, to consider it accursed, as Paul said in Galatians 1, to have no company or fellowship with it, as he said in 2 Thessalonians 2 and 3. Go ahead, prove all things. Hold fast only that which is good. We call upon our contacts to separate from primitive Baptist churches because primitive Baptist churches are in error on one, two, or all of the points I have raised this morning. The choice is yours. God does not accept imperfect obedience. Moses tried that. Moses tried to obey the Lord imperfectly. He obeyed Him at every point except when it came to speaking to the rock. Moses smote it instead, and because of that, Moses did not reach the promised land of Canaan. Imperfect obedience in the life of one as faithful as Moses kept him from God's rest, from God's best for his life. The man Uzzah was trying to get that Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, but he reached forth his hand in violation of the due order of things, touched the Ark, and God smote him dead. The Apostle Peter was an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ and part of the foundation upon which the New Testament church is built. But when he behaved like a hypocrite, Paul withstood him to his face. And so do I withstand anyone to their face who does not obey perfectly what the Word of God has to say. That is why David said, and I have repeated so many times, I esteem all thy precepts 
concerning all things to be right. And I hate every false way. Psalm 119 and verse 28. I am not saying that all primitive Baptists are going to hell. That's between God and the book of life. I'm not saying that some primitive Baptist churches may not yet be the true churches of Christ. They could hold all the errors that I've covered and still be the true church of Christ, just like the church at Galatia was a church of Christ, even though they taught you had to be circumcised to make it to heaven. Even though the church at Thyatira was a church of Jesus Christ, who had a woman preacher who said she ought to commit fornication and eat meat offered to idols. And they were a true church of Jesus Christ. In the same way, primitive Baptist churches may be a true church of Jesus Christ. But I'll warn you of one thing. If you don't repent, and if you don't come out of those churches, the Lord will take His candlestick away from them, and there'll be no churches left. I'm not praying for members from other primitive Baptist churches. I'm praying for revival among the primitive Baptist churches and a restoration of apostolic doctrine and tradition. I don't want more non-resident members unless they have no other alternative. I want ministers converted and primitive Baptist churches returned to the true primitive faith and order, and that is Paul's faith and order. While there's a large variance among primitive Baptist churches on what I've covered this morning, at large I've dealt with what most of the churches are guilty of. I have no personal animosity, though I hate false doctrine. Am I jealous? Yes, I'm jealous for several souls out there that I am responsible for, that I feel may be tempted by the proximity, the closeness of the primitive Baptists to the Greenville Church on some points of doctrine, and I want them saved entirely. Remember, the most dangerous counterfeit is not the counterfeit that is most corrupt. It's the counterfeit that is most pure. The most dangerous counterfeit is the one that looks like the real thing. Just because the primitive Baptists have the true doctrine of salvation to eternal life, and that is by the unconditional grace of God, does not mean that they're not counterfeits of the true. They have imbibed the false tradition of the Pharisees, and you need to separate from them. We can have our choice here in Greenville, and we've made it. We've made it to be independent, to be a scattered flock, not to associate, not to band together, because there's no value in doing anything that God has not told us to do. Close is not good enough. Close is not good enough. Or you'll end up being like Moses, begging God for something better than being left in the wilderness. Those of you who are listening to this tape, if you do not come out from among the primitive Baptists and prove all things and hold fast that which is good, you may very well be left like Moses was, in a desert, in a wilderness, dying on the top of Mount Nebo, unable to enter the promised land of what God has in store for those who will follow Him faithfully. I pray that you'll follow Him. I pray that we'll hold true and maintain our independence and stand upon the Word of God as He has commanded us to do. Mark them and avoid them. Consider them accursed. Have no fellowship with them. Yet, we'll do the work of an evangelist. We would love to see the primitive Baptist converted back to the apostolic faith and order. Till then, we shall stand on our own and we will take all who want to be part of this congregation who want to worship Jesus Christ perfectly according to everything the Word of God contains that worship ought to involve and to be separate 
from all false doctrine and practice. May Jesus Christ be praised and may his churches be increased, converted, and established in the truth of the gospel is my prayer.